listening to Foundry Church's weekly podcast, where our singular focus is to help people know, follow, and share Jesus. Our hope is that today's message would help you to encounter the living Christ in a new and transformative way. Good morning. So let's start with a little fun today. Um, we're talking about what matters most. And um, I wonder if I could, by show of hands, if I mention two things, you tell me what, your fav- what you would choose, what the, your favorite would be, okay? So like, let's start with um, mountains or water. Like I'm thinking vacation. Mountains, water. Okay, good. That's like 50-50 split. Hopefully not 50-50, you know, in your marriage. That would be, I guess you'd have to do both. That wouldn't be a bad thing, right? If you do water, okay, say oceans or lake. Oceans, like the beach or a lake. Again, pretty well split. Um, All right, let's shift a little bit. Early mornings or late nights? Early mornings, that's why you're in the first service. Um, Or late nights, anybody? Yeah, a few. Um, how about Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Trek, Star Wars, we have a few like neither. Um, salty or sweet? Salty, sweet, split pretty even. Coke or Dr. Pepper? How many of you are Texans? Coke, Dr. Pepper, I didn't even put Pepsi, that doesn't even make the list. I'm from the South, so we don't even consider that a... Real, alt, alt, <laughs> real option. Um, I was going to do one more. Maybe I will. Aggies or anything else? Aggies? How many Aggies or anything else? And yeah, they're a little more bashful after yesterday's game, though, right? Not really. Um, the truth is, we say we love many things. We have many affections, and we can have, this is a good way to get to know somebody, right, if you're just meeting someone, to talk about their affections. But in reality, what I want to suggest to you today is that we have one ultimate affection or concern. There is one ultimate affection or concern that drives our behavior, that drives our lives, that dictates the direction that we go. And Cade, as the team led that last song, is a perfect way like just to declare our affection for Jesus, our allegiance and our love for Jesus. Um, Theologian Paul Tillich once wrote it this way, everyone is religious because everyone has something of ultimate concern. Everyone, everyone uh, worships something. We might not use that language, and that might seem a little drastic, but whatever we give our allegiance to, whatever our priority, our our allegiance, our love, our concern, our ultimate concern or affection goes to is worship. So as we complete this series today, we've been looking at the Good Samaritan story that Jesus told and unpacking it from different angles and different people in the story, the different characters in the story, what, what I really want you to see and to ask yourself is, what is my greatest allegiance? What is my supreme concern, my ultimate affection or concern? 
Because that's what drives the decision um, in to walk around the other side or as the Samaritan does to stop and to help. Uh, James Smith wrote in a book, You Are What You Love, that we are not primarily thinkers but lovers. Regardless of how sophisticated or intellectual we try to make ourselves seem, our lives will be directed and defined by our affections. What do you give your affections to? Um, this story is in Luke 10. If you have your Bibles or your phone, I encourage you to open it up. We're going to flip back and forth between a few chapters there, but we're going to center in once again on the same story. I want to I start in Luke 10, 25, just remembering the context, okay? So on one occasion, an expert in the law, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The expert in the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he can't leave it there, he has to ask another question, and he asks, and who is my neighbor? Jesus goes on to tell the story in response to this interaction. This is important. It's a story about two nice guys and, uh, that seem nice, and and still walk along around the other side. A guy's beaten up on the side of the road, and two don't stop to help him. It's the two that we would think would be the heroes, and they're not the heroes. There's another guy that's not supposed to be the good guy. He's supposed to be the bad guy, and yet he stops and helps. Verse 33, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw the man, he took pity on him. Remember that part. It's going to be important. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, that's about two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus said, which of these do you think is a neighbor, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And so Jesus said, go and do likewise. So I want you to put yourself in the, in the shoes of the man who had asked the question. You know, Jesus says to inherit eternal life, he must, what, love God and love people. He, he quotes the Shema, which was a prayer that they would pray every morning and every evening. And the man, of course, being an expert in the law, knows that he checks the boxes on this. He agrees with this. It's, 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 it's the qualifying question that gets him in some hot water. This is the central, central um, question. Um, it's easy to say that you love God and that you love people. But the story proves that talk is cheap. That talk and what we say and the appearance of things does not always indicate what is really our affection, what is really on the inside. What, what's really driving our lives is not necessarily what we say. It is, and it's a little bit more complicated than that. The truth is, talk is cheap, but faith is costly. That and, and here's why. It's not because God's testing us. It's because if you truly, listen, 
If your ultimate affection and concern is truly God and his kingdom and what he says, then you will be willing to give up other things. Otherwise, by definition, it's not your priority. I mean, that makes sense, right? And Jesus, if we look at the context in the other chapters surrounding this interaction, it's clear what Jesus, what's at the heart of this. Um, Just one chapter before this, Jesus takes his disciples, the 12, on a field trip, and they go to, to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a, 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 a central place for worship of other gods. It was Roman influence, and it was all of these things, and there was a temple to the god Pan. And the religious practices, the worship practices of the adherence to Pan were horrible. They're even hard to mention child sacrifice, all kinds of despicable things. And it was a place of great debauchery. It would be like me standing up in some ways, not really exactly, but it would be kind of bizarre for Jesus to tell the disciples, hey, we're gonna go here. It would be like, hey, guys, we're gonna have a deep spiritual retreat in Vegas next week. You ready to sign up for that? I mean, Jesus tells them they're gonna go there, and they had to be asking questions about why. But they go, and Jesus takes them right to this, this temple, right next to the temple. And there's this huge rock face um, that we visit when we go to the Holy Land that's still there. You can see it, where Jesus would have asked this question. He asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do others say that I am? Who are the crowds saying that I am? He had crowds following by, by this time. He had grown in some popularity, and, and there were questions about who he was. And he looks at the disciples and says, who do other people say that I am? And they said, some say that you're Elijah or one of the prophets, that you're this promised one that's come. But Jesus turns to them and says, who do you say that I am? Very different question than what do the crowds say. What the crowds say matters is important, and what you say might not be the same thing. What matters is what you say. How do you respond? And he turns to them and says, how do you, how do you, what do you say? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, it declares that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what Peter's confession, and Jesus goes on to commend Peter and say, I'll build my church upon you and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Interesting in that place for him to say that, right? It adds a depth of meaning and understanding when we know where it was. He said, the gates of hell will not stand against the church that will build on your confession and on Peter himself or their different debates. But the point is, that Jesus um, makes this kind of statement. Peter has this right response, and Jesus affirms him. And in the very next sentence, Jesus begins to tell how he's going to go about it, that he's going to be rejected and, and, and beaten and put to death. And Peter objects, and Jesus is like, the next sentence, he's like, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. And Jesus follows this with this line. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their own soul? What good would it be? What value would there be 
to gain all of this world and, let, and yet lose your soul. You say you want to be my disciple. Well, here is what it looks like. It means putting God first. It means putting Jesus and his claim on your life first in everything. It will be costly. But listen, if he's really God, if this is really the life that you were designed to live, if it's your ultimate purpose, is it really costly? Is it really a risk? Is it really a sacrifice? Or is it just that we've gotten uh, our, our economy right? We've gotten our values right. And the world will look and say, it's a sacrifice. But we know that it's not a sacrifice. Because if you do what really matters, if you live for what really matters, then everything else has lesser value. And what might look valuable in the eyes of the Lord, in fact, in the eyes of the world, in fact, does not have any value at all. And so it's not really costly Truly, it's just costly in the eyes of the world and the worldly values to give up your life to really find it, to not live for lesser things. And the question is, do we align with what we say we believe? The lawyer, it was all up here. He was, he was 18 inches away from where Jesus was. 18 inches from his head to his heart, from his affections, from just knowing the right answers. And so the question is, what is our ultimate concern, regardless of what you say? What is our ultimate concern? Look at the people in the story. Let's go back to the Samaritan with that in mind, with some of the other surrounding things Jesus has taught. Like before this story, when he talks about the seed and the different soils, and the good soil that receives the word of God. When he talks about living a fruitful life, when he talks about giving your life away so that you can really find it, when he says all of these things all around this story, what is the difference between the Samaritan and the other two? What's not different, clearly, Luke points this out, and he wants us to make sure we see this, that we don't miss it, okay? They all three saw the man. They all three saw him. The priest and the Levite saw him. The, the man who had been robbed and beaten up on the side of the road, they saw him. And they walked around the other side of the road to avoid him. And we talked last week about some of the reasons or the excuses that they might have got, they might have given. But what makes, let's call him Sam, is that okay? Let's. What, is, what makes Sam good? What makes Sam different? He saw him, and Luke says that the Samaritans saw him, and that Jesus said the Samaritans saw him and took pity on him. That's the difference. It's one thing to see something it's another thing, it's, it's one thing to see a need. It's another thing altogether to respond to that need with empathy, right? Now, the answer to how you actually make a difference, helping people is difficult, okay? I don't mean to simplify this, but there's a difference between people who walk through life and they see problems and say, oh gosh, 
That's too bad. And people who walk through life and they see problems and their heart breaks. Their heart breaks because there's brokenness in our world. And what do we do to fix the problems? That's a whole other conversation. But, but at the heart of it is this question that we said last week differentiates the two, the priest and the Levite, from the Samaritan. And the question that the priest and the Levite, I think, ask in their heart is, what will happen to me if I stop and help? The Samaritan instead says, what will happen to him if I don't? And that question drives their behavior, their response. And it reveals, listen, ultimately, this is all about the heart because it reveals something below the surface, the parable of the sower. Again, what is the heart? What is the affection? What matters most? And Jesus tells this parable intentionally putting the priest and the Levite as the ones who have hard hearts, the ones who have other affections, the ones we would think would be the ones to respond, don't respond with empathy, but the one who on the outside, see, it's not about the surface, it's what's below the surface, it's what's really in the heart. This is why Jesus, the next chapter in Luke, talks about the religious leaders saying that they're like whitewashed tombs, that they look clean on the outside, but in the inside, on the inside they're filthy, and they're, they're full of pride, and they're full of, of greed, and the appearance of good, um, goodness is not necessarily indicative of what's on the inside on their, in their hearts. And listen, in, in, in the next chapter Luke, of Luke, in Luke 11, after he has said this, he says something that might sound a little odd, but I, hang, I want you to hang with me because I'm going to unpack this in a way that maybe you, you haven't realized before. Luke 11, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Now, to modern readers, this sounds really strange, okay? This whole business of eyes and light and darkness, it's a little odd, okay? But, when we understand that the ancients saw the eye in a different way than we do, um, we know that an eye is an organ that allows light to pass into our bodies, making sight possible. But in the ancient world, it was thought that sight was a process where light passed out of the body through the eyes. If you think that light passes out of your body through your eyes, then it changes the way we read this, this, this instruction, this parable of Jesus. You could say that the Samaritan's eyes, the way that he sees the world, reveals his heart. I think this is what Jesus is saying when he says this. The way, the way that you see the world is an indication of what's inside. Because if your eyes, if you see with light, or if you see with darkness, it reveals what's in your heart. The way that you see, seeing is an indication of the heart. Now what, that leads us to the next thing about our unlikely hero, that 
His actions prove that he's different. His sacrifice, listen, his sacrifice proves his life is surrendered. His sacrifice proves. The words healthy and unhealthy in Luke 11 that I just read and in other passages of Scripture are often translated actually as generosity or generous or stingy or, or grudgingly. You see, generous, being generous is an indication of our heart and the values and our ultimate concern. We all are attracted to generous people, right? I mean, we love generosity as a value. We don't, I mean, how many of you say, like, I really want to find some stingy friends? Like, I need more people like that in my life. No. Jesus says, Those who practice generosity, who see people in need and have compassion, they're full of light. The greedy, they only see their own need. They just want to acquire more for themselves. They're full of darkness. And so this is a statement just, the story is just as much. We haven't really, we haven't really talked about it in this way, but this is a story of generosity that the Samaritan you know, because goes, Jesus goes on into de- great detail about what he did to make sure that he was taken care of. He didn't just have empathy and then say, well, now, like, I'll just get him somewhere and then hopefully his family will take care of him or hopefully he has enough. No, he goes and he pays for the man's expenses and says, I'll come back tomorrow and if there are any more, I'll pay for them. This stranger on the side of the road, he's already done enough. He doesn't have to do any more. But Jesus is showing us, he's showing us that faith, faith can be seen in the heart. And the heart, ultimately, one of the best signs of of whether our heart is Christ-like is the level of generosity in our life. This is why Jesus talks about money so much in Scripture. You know he talks about money more than he talks about prayer, right? It's not because prayer isn't important. It's because Jesus knows our heart. And he knows the things that our hearts become attached to. And he knows what it is to, that, that humanity, that we all struggle to place value in things that are only temporal. And we will actually, we'll actually put our soul in jeopardy for temporal, temporal things. And he doesn't want you to be deceived about this. He wants you to understand the power of material wealth. And so over and over and over again, he tells us to be careful about where, what, what we put our treasure, where we place our treasure, because our heart will follow. And wherever your heart follows, wherever your heart is, your whole life will go in that direction because your attitudes flow out of your heart. And so this is one of Jesus' most consistent cautions and so t- today I want to spend the rest of our time together, the, n- the next few minutes, I want to unpack some of what the Bible teaches about possessions, about treasure, about material wealth, about money. What does the Bible teach? And I want to start by saying what the Bible doesn't teach, because I think we get a lot of messages that are masked as biblical and they're really not. Okay, first of all, what the Bible does not teach. What is, this is a, false theolo- a couple of false theologies about wealth. First of all, is um, there's this theology I'll call the poverty theology. 
Basically, it claims that poor people are righteous, that, that money is evil. It takes the Bible out of context. The Bible never says that money is evil. It says the love of money is evil. The love of money is the root of all evil because of what I just said, right? That our hearts become attached to temporal material things and it causes us to do all sorts of things because we're bowing at the altar of money. So poverty theology that money is sinful is not biblical. Um, it's not like all the poor people are righteous and the rich people are, 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 are wicked. Jesus had poor friends, Jesus was homeless, and Jesus also had wealthy friends who supported his ministry. It's about the heart, it's not about the amount of money that we have. Wealth is not evil, but there's another theology on the other end of the spectrum that we'll call prosperity theology that basically teaches that God is a means to wealth. It's about, it's, this is not about worshiping God, it's about I want more money, so I'm gonna go to God because God's rich and he can provide me, he can bless me. Um, and this, both of these take the Bible out of context. So can we just put those up there and say, like, we need to check, we need to check our hearts against what we believed when we've heard things like this, either that money is bad or that, that somehow God's going to, if you just have enough faith and worship God, then he's going to pour out material blessing in your life and you're always automatically gonna be wealthy. Instead, it's not a rich or poor issue. What the Bible teaches are heart principles, again, that are attached to money because we deal with money and possessions so much in our lives. How much of our time and our thoughts are dedicated to providing for our family or earning more or saving more or doing this or, you know, how we're going to spend, how much time do we spend on what we're going to spend our money on, right? Um, it's impossible to detach the two. So what does the Bible teach about these heart principles related to material wealth? First, the first principle, the first heart principle, I, I would say is provision. In all things, it, when it comes to money and possessions, we have to remember that God is our source for everything. That everything we have, every good thing comes from God. God is the provider. Deuteronomy 8, it says, remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors. This is, this is the Israelites are going to the promised land. He, God doesn't want them to forget where their blessing came from. That it is God who provides. Because here's the temptation. The more that we acquire, the easier it is to see our own hand in that. That somehow we are deceived by thinking that we did all of that that we earned it, but it is God who provides for us always. This doesn't say that God will just shower you with wealth, but it says that he will give you whatever abilities you have, and some of you have the ability to create wealth and to earn a lot of money, and that is not wrong. It's just a temptation to use that to your own advantage versus to leverage those gifts for the kingdom of God and to do as much good as you possibly can with the gift that God has given you. But if you forget that it's God who's given you the gift, then you will misuse what you earn. Everything is a gift from God. The other side of the coin is when we realize it's God who's, who's providing for us, it kind of... It combats fear in our life because so much of a lack of generosity in our lives 
is rooted in this fear or this scarcity mentality that there won't be enough. Can I tell you a story real quick? The other night we were out trick-or-treating with the little boys. Um, Hunter and Corey were with us and um, they ran up to this one house towards the end of the evening and knocked on the door and the lady came out and she was so apologetic. She was so embarrassed. She was like, I ran out of candy. Okay, and so they ran back to us and stopped and I said, like, boys, how much candy do you have? Like they, I mean, they were loaded up, like loaded up. And you know what? As a dad, I'm thinking like, I don't want to take all this home. I don't want them to eat this for the next five days. You know, like I'm going to have to hide this. I'm going to have to throw it away without them knowing, you know, all those things you do. After the daddy tax. Everybody love the daddy tax? Daddy tax, daddy takes first, right? But, but they looked and, and we, they decided, I said, they went back up to the door, knocked on the door again, and she came back out, and they said, we know you ran out, and there might be more kids coming, so why don't we fill your bucket back up so that the next kids that are coming, you don't have to do that. Talk, I mean, like it was this moment, like the lady was like, where are your parents? I want to be friends with them. <laughs> if they only knew, right? Um, generosity warms our hearts, doesn't it? And see, part of it is this, like, the kids were only, and here's the, the really cool thing, is one of their friends was with them down the street, friend down the street, and at first he was like, no, I ain't doing that. But then when they did it, it was kind of like, oh, maybe I do have enough. Maybe it'll be okay. And they took more joy, like, we went home and talked about the lesson in that, that sometimes it'll feel like there's not enough. And so we'll want to just store, store, store for ourselves. But if we really believe that God is the one who provides, then we can overcome that fear that there won't be enough. Because, friends, God is enough. And it'll force you to live in a more generous way. Okay. Provision first. Priority. Honor God first. It's the first fruits. This was the biblical model all throughout scriptures that they would take the first of what they earned. Because if you believe that God is the provider and that he will always provide, then, then that's an act of trust and faith to take what's first. To not wait till the end of the month and see if there's enough left over to bring to God, but to give first. Provision, priority. And then the Bible teaches about percentage giving. That it's not like every person is expected to give the same amount. Um, but every, everyone is, is expected and invited and to, to bring the same percentage as the Old Testament model of a tithe, 10%. The first, so if we do priority and percentage, then that means the first 10% of everything we give back to God. Now, let me tell you, parents, if you have young kids, this is one of the best lessons you can teach from the very beginning. Because I can tell you, I, I know, I know it's hard to move towards a tithe if you've never practiced it. That's, that's, a, that's a real act of faith. And you can do it, but, but you know, my parents taught me from the very beginning, and there's never been a time in my life, and Jacqueline and I have always given 10%, our first 10%, to the, to the ministry of the church because a large, a big part of that was my parents, I gotta say, teaching me that and modeling it from the very beginning. So parents, I, I encourage you, 
And, and you know what that means. Like, <laughs> um, that means you, you want to move there too because you can't teach them to do something you're not willing to do. But to take that first 10% to give it back to God. Now, some people say this is Old Testament model, right? Like I'm living in the freedom of the New Testament. Some of you think that way. That's actually true. It is an Old Testament model. The Old Testament says give 10%. Jesus says give 100%. And so you choose, Old Testament, New Testament. Like, which one? <laughs> it's your choice, you know, whichever one. You want to go New Testament. Jesus says give it all away. Um, the, the problem had become in the New Testament what Jesus confronts is that, that the Pharisees, like the Levite and the the priests were part of that company that they were doing everything right. So they were giving 10% to check those boxes and look righteous on the outside. But their hearts were they, were, they were actually abusing the religious system to take more from the poor so that they could give. But, you know, and, and just because you're giving 10% doesn't make you right. And G, that's what Jesus confronted in and he uses a lot of hyperbole and exaggeration, but, but I still believe that the, the Old Testament model of the tithe is still kind of a threshold. It's like still a, an obedience thing, but you're under the spirit now, and so there is a little bit more of a dynamic to that. Um, but, but listen, most of the time when we just want to get rid of the Old Testament law, it's not because Jesus fulfilled it. It's because we want an excuse to just do whatever we want. And so this is the biblical, the biblical model of percentage really leads us to the next and final um, principle, which is progressive. Progressive. Remember the story? Like, if we go back, what, what the man says really is, how little do I have to do? You know, love God, love your neighbor. Okay, who's my neighbor? That's really a question of like, He's saying, who do I have to love? Who can I exclude? And there's a similar question here because really our question shouldn't be, how much do I have to give? It should be, how can I grow in my generosity and manage everything that I have so that I can progressively give more and more and more and maximize my impact in the world? to move beyond just 10%. Some people say, why the church? I would just say, like, that's, that's you know, your decision, but just Jacqueline and I have always felt like the church, without the church, friends, without the church, I'm afraid for our society. I'm for, for, afraid for, for what our world becomes without the church. There are many other good organizations. We give to those, but we always give, like, this is just what we do. We give 10% to the church first. Because without the church, I don't think a lot of those other nonprofits and other organizations and, you know, missionaries, I think the church is the foundation. It's the body of Christ. And I think where you receive spiritual care and, and discipleship and all of these things, this is where you're fed, hopefully, and you're part of, that's got to thrive. That's underneath all of it. Um, so I want to leave you with these things um, as, as I close out today. I want to invite you to steps because I know... I'm preaching to a broad audience. Some of us grew up in church. Some of us, this is 
Um, we've heard this before. For others of us, it's a new idea and it sounds scary. So I want, to th- I want you to think in terms of steps because I think each one of these steps is a huge step that you can take. So if you've never given before, taking the step to be an initial giver, to give to God for the first time is a huge step of faith. It's a huge step of faith just to give something. And if you're there, I know for some people it's a trust issue with, you know, of course I'm up here like selling you on this because I'm the preacher and I got it, you know, we got to meet the budget and all that stuff, right? Let me just say this. If that's where you are, I, this is as honest as I can be. If you're hung up there and you think it's about me trying to get you to give something so that the church will have more, listen, give somewhere else. I'm telling you that. Give some, test it in this and give somewhere else. Because this really isn't about what God wants from you. It's what God wants for you. And this is a growth and a heart issue. And so if you're hung up on me saying this, then give somewhere else. Give to another church that's helping people know, follow, and share Jesus. Because you're missing out on the, on the blessing of what God does in your heart when you begin to give. Okay? So the first gift is a huge step. The next level is to sporadically give, like to give ongoing, um, but, but it's not really with any forethought or a plan. It's not intentional, and, and that is a big, that's a big step, but the, really the big step is to, to, to step into this intentional giving, and that's why we've mentioned the last few weeks there are these pledge cards in the seats. Listen, those aren't for us. Those are, those are for you as a spiritual discipline to be intentional and to move towards the biblical standard of the tithe. And maybe for you, that's such a huge leap and your budget's tight. I get it, friends. But what what would it look like for you to take one little percentage step? Just just have the conversation and plan it out and, and search your heart. But ultimately, what we're talking about when we talk about progressive is that You know, the legacy giver, now listen, everybody's not going to be able to move beyond 10%, and that's a big faith journey, but for a lot of us, God has blessed us, um, and the real, the real, um, the really exciting thing you could do is just to evaluate everything, your wealth and everything that you have, and how you can, you can make a huge impact in the world. Huge impact for the kingdom. And I can't, this is not a workshop where I can get into all of that, but, but there are some resources if you're interested that I could point you to. But this is moving beyond just, like the Bible says 10%, so I gotta give 10% every month. This is moving to, of all that God's blessed me with, how do I make the most difference? And that's a, a mentality shift that will, that will change so much in your heart and your life. Um, here's what I want to end with today. Jesus doesn't do anything that, or ask us to do anything that he's not willing to do himself. And when we consider his sacrifice, that's what we remember at this meal. That we receive his grace and we extend his grace. And he says, come to this table, remember me and my sacrifice. He, he breaks the bread with the disciples and with us today in his presence we are. And he says, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken and given for you. Do it in remembrance of me. The cup, he gives thanks and says, this is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of it, 
do it in remembrance of me. And so, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would flood our hearts and minds. Lord, we give you our allegiance, our affection. We thank you for being a good God. And we pray that you'd meet us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so grateful that you joined us today and invite you to visit us online at foundrychurch.org for more information on how you can worship, serve, and get connected with us.